Hi, welcome to the Behind the Balance Sheet podcast, where we meet leading investors and commentators and educate ourselves about the world of investing and the world. Our mission is to remove some of the mystique around investing and improve our understanding of what makes a successful investment or indeed an unsuccessful one. Our goal is to inform, educate and entertain. We hope you enjoy this and every episode. Behind the balance sheet and affiliates and podcast guests may own shares or have an economic interest in securities discussed in this podcast, which is aired for your education and entertainment only. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment advice or relied upon for investment decisions. Always do your own research. This episode is brought to you by AlphaSense, the AI platform behind the world's biggest decisions. Are you still leaving Alpha on the table? The right financial intelligence platform can make or break your quarter. AlphaSense is the number one rated financial research solution by G2 with AI search technology and a library of premium content. You can stay ahead of key macroeconomic trends and accelerate your investment research efforts. AI capabilities like smart synonyms and sentiment analysis provide even deeper industry and company analysis. From when to buy, hold or sell investments to why, AlphaSense gives you the tools you need to provide better analysis for you and your clients. Visit alpha-sense.com forward slash FS today to beat FOMO and move faster than the market. This podcast is about more than finance, and I would like to tell you about the charity we support. Duchenne UK was set up by Emily Rubin and Alex Johnson in 2012, following both of their sons being diagnosed with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Duchenne is a progressive condition diagnosed in childhood that causes all the muscles in the body to gradually but irreversibly weaken. There is currently no cure for this disease, although there is hope. Emily and Alex set up the charity to advance treatments and care for everyone affected by the disease. Duchenne UK has tackled some of the big challenges in drug development in a search to accelerate the development of treatments, committing £18 million in the last 11 years. But they still need our support to continue their groundbreaking and life-changing work. Please play your part in helping to change the lives of both children and adults with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Visit their website at bit.ly forward slash B-T-B-S-D-U-C-H. That's B-I-T spot L-Y forward slash B-T-B-S for behind the balance sheet, D for dividend, U for underperform, C for capital, H for hedge funds. Please help. Thank you. Sebastian Lyon is a conservative investor who manages a multi-asset fund. His fund has been a strong performer because it's only had three down years in its 20-year life. In 2022, it was down only 4%, in spite of that being a terrible year for both equities and bonds. My main takeaway from our conversation was how Sebastian explained his process, that it's constantly being refined. The team at Troy are on a journey of continuous learning. And of course, I was pleased to hear that training is a priority for them, as it should be for any serious investor. Sebastian places emphasis on a study of the past. He thinks this is important, not just for markets, but also for companies. He only invests in quality businesses, and he determines that from looking at the company's past record, not just in financial parameters, but also in softer factors, like how many CEOs has the business had? He's also an advocate of market timing. Sebastian varies his exposure to equities according to whether they're cheap or expensive. This is quite controversial because some commentators are convinced that it's time in the market, not timing the market. But Sebastian has a very simple answer. I really enjoyed our discussion. Sebastian's investing philosophy favors the simple over the complex. He has an art of clarifying issues and making them comprehensible. And I think that is one signal of a really excellent investor. Warren Buffett's obviously the exemplar. I think many private investors are drawn to the complex and to the risky. Everyone enjoys talking about their big wins down the pub. Sebastian's approach is the opposite and it works. You cannot fail to learn something from this discussion. 
I certainly did, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. So, Sebastian, welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to to talk to you. Um, and the first question I always ask everybody is, did you always want to be an investor? Well, thanks, Steve. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Uh, I got into investing very early on in my teens. My father was a stockbroker, stock jobber, and uh, he his enthusiasm for the stock market rubbed off on me. And so he got me into, I think, my first stock when I was about 14. Uh, I then went to university. We set up something called the Stock Sock at university, <laughs> um, uh, which we got people like my father to come and come and speak to introduce us to the idea of stockbroking and investing. And then through my university summers, uh, and these days they'd be called internships, but uh, they were a lot less formal than that. They were just sort of odd jobs, really. I got experience uh, in all sorts of parts of the city because I wasn't exactly sure which part of the city I was going to go into. I mean, I, I experienced things like... Um, aircraft leasing, corporate finance, uh, stockbroking, stock market, market making, as it was post-Big Bang. Uh, and then finally, the year before I graduated, I went to Singer and Friedlander to, to do investment management. And I love that. I, I just immediately clicked. I clicked with the people. I really liked the fact that, unlike my experiences in stockbroking or market making, that it was longer term. Mm. Uh, it was more cerebral. Uh, it was less manic. And it's effectively, it suited my personality. And so I, I was very fortunate in getting a graduate trainee job there a year later. So that really got me started in, in the investment management world. And then you ended up managing what would have been the family office of Lord Weinstock, but didn't, weren't called family yeah. offices. And how did, that, no. how did that happen? Well, I was, I was quite keen for it not to be a family office. I mean, I, I, I was a GC for five years. I met Lord Weinstock. Uh, he was rather disillusioned with the private bank that was looking after his, his money at the time. Uh, I was giving him some advice here and there uh, when I was at GEC. And he approached me in 99, uh, in 1999 and said, you know, would you like to uh, invest my family's money for me? And you don't get that sort of offer very often. And you should explain Lord Weinstock was a giant. In yeah, the, Lord, Lord Weinstock was managing director. They weren't called chief executives in those days. He was managing director of the General Electric Company, which was um, the equivalent of the UK GE, really. It was a big electronics and defense business. It was capitalized at about 10 billion pounds. It was, it was one of the largest FTSE 100 companies back in the 80s. And he created a lot of value for shareholders, particularly in the 60s and 70s. Uh, and through the early 80s. Um, and he'd been run, he ran the business essentially for 40 years and created mm. also a lot of value for his family and um, was a large shareholder in the business. And so when in, in the late 90s, I think he retired in 1996, became chairman emeritus, um, spent a lot of time on his outside interests, particularly racing, which he was extremely passionate about, but also um, other interests as well, like opera. And um, he, but he had an office at GEC where he could be approached, and uh, it happened to be next door to my office. So he used to pop in, you know, at about sort of five o'clock, six o'clock in the evening, and I was still there, sort of finishing up, and asked me what I'd been doing, and and um, asked me, you know, effectively said, you know, my investment advisor is suggesting this. What do you think? And we started talking about investment ideas, and that was, I suppose, nineteen ninety eight. And then um, by 99, he actually said, you know, will you come and work for me? And I said I would do it on one condition, which is that the one thing about working at GEC that I didn't like was the fact that I was sort of in-house, that mm -hmm. I was uncommercial, that I was effectively a civil servant running money. Yeah. And what I wanted to do is move back into the commercial world mm -hmm. whereby I could run a fund. And if all went well, if I could build up a good track record, that ultimately I could attract other uh, clients, as well as the Weinstock family, rather than just be a family office, as you suggested. So when we set up the business um, in 2000 and became regulated in 2001, that was why we called it Troy Asset Management Limited. You know, the only client effectively that I had was the Weinstock family with a few friends and family who came in on day one uh, with the launch of the Trojan Fund, but 99% of the money was Weinstock family. But gradually, as the performance built up, um, we attracted third-party money. Who chose the name Troy? Uh, Lord Weinstock chose the name. He gave me three names, one of which was totally unintelligible. Uh, one was Spectrum uh, and one was Troy. Troy had been his um, derby winner in 1979. Ah. Uh, and so it was actually named, everybody thinks it's named after the city of Troy. It's actually named after a horse called Troy uh, and showed his sort of interest, ongoing interest in racing. 
so it was, and also I rather liked it because well, one, it's sort of, it's, it's simple. It's sort of also at the time, there are a lot of companies starting up in the financial services sector, many, many hedge funds. You'll remember in 2000, 2001, 2002. And so we had these, these various choices. And I, I just thought Troy actually, for a business that was new, it sounded like it had been around for a long time. Yeah. So I rather, I rather liked the name uh, and, and it stuck. I was very happy to, to choose it. And that's, that's, so that's the, the background to the Interesting. Because to I, was the trying to, I was trying to work out what the connection to the, to the city of Troy. And I was, I was, I was struggling with that. And it's quite funny because we're talking about GEC being a huge company at 10 billion pounds, mm. which is what sort of NVIDIA ads and, you know, before the opening, I mean, uh, <laughs> on a, in a day. Yeah, but in, but the, that FTSE, was, that in was, the FTSE in 1989, that was huge. I mean, the biggest company probably would have been 50 billion or something. Yeah. So it was a big, it was a no, big, no, it was big FTSE 100 company back then. And I think, well, I don't know, in my experience, managers' style was often influenced by when they start. And you started the time of the dot-com fallout. So is that what led you to be sort of this conservative approach? Or were you always like that? Well, Steve, there's about three answers to that question. The first thing is when I started and when I started. So when I started my career, I started my career in 1989. And 1989, 90, 91, 92, you'll remember, was it started off by people talking about a soft landing. It started, it was at a time when interest rates were being raised quite materially by central banks and inflation was high. In fact, not unlike what we're going through today. Mm. And what happened during that period, and I can remember stockbrokers ringing me up as a young, wet behind the ears fund manager uh, saying, oh, you've got to buy these house builders. It's, it's fine. They look very cheap. There's going to be a soft landing. They kept disappointing because interest rates kept biting. And as a result, housing market, the housing market fell, you know. Well, the housing market crashed in housing market, the housing market 19, crashed 19, yeah. and, um, over a period of two or three years, and, and the house builders went down by 95%. Yeah. So there's all this sort of, sort of false optimism, basically, and, and a lot of value traps out there. Uh, and back then, the market was full of these cyclical businesses, domestically cyclical businesses, which got hit badly, but not just for one year or two years, but over a period of three years. And it was very, very painful people investing in those areas. And so, so I think coming back to your question about, you know, did, how, how has that affected the way that you invest? The first thing that I saw was a lot of damage to portfolios from these effectively cyclical, highly capital intensive businesses. Whereas the more defensive businesses and the things that did well during the downturn in the early uh, early 1990s were companies back then like Guinness and Glaxo and companies that were growing steadily in a period where there was a recession. And so I think that that was my, that was, if you like, those were my formative years mm. um, about seeing those, those businesses which were actually much more vulnerable and their profits were much less predictable than actually people thought they were. And so coming to 2000, 2001, 2002, which is when I launched the Trojan Fund, um, part of that I wanted to put in place within the fund. So I wanted to give our investors a much more comfortable ride than the volatility that they experienced, particularly during downturns. And you're right, we launched just after the, the dot-com boom. And I could see that there are sometimes when one has greater clarity about what's going on in markets, and, and sometimes it's not so easy. And when I did start the fund, I had clarity that there were these ridiculously overvalued uh, companies, which effectively were, to all intents and purposes, highly speculative and really a gamble. And many of them, in the end, uh, went bust. And alternatively, there were, because of the way that the market's dynamics worked, there were a lot of high quality value stocks. Value, value is obviously in the eye of the beholder, but there were a lot of, lot of companies out there that people have been selling to buy the dot-com stocks um, and chasing high growth in the prospect of growth in the internet. And so a lot of companies have been left behind. And so there was this very large arbitrage, big valuation gap within the market. And the other thing that I could see that these companies were the kinds of things that actually I probably prefer to own anyway. Mm -hmm. And so... So I wasn't in, I didn't get I didn't fall into any of those traps. I was very very defensively positioned at the beginning because I felt markets were very high both in the US and the UK. Uh, if you remember the UK, I think back in 1999 2000, 40% of it was in TMT that were on very very large ratings. So there was a lot of downside risk there. And so I started the fund in uh, May of 20, 2001 
just very, very cautious mm. uh, within that position. And, and maybe if you're being a little critical about what I did, then you could say, well, if I was running a, a, a portfolio, an existing portfolio, maybe I wouldn't have taken that risk. But I had that, I suppose, because I'd been six months out of the market as I got my regulatory clearance and setting up the fund ready to go, I had this sort of clarity at the time that, that I, I had a feeling as though I knew what was coming. Uh, and then clearly, towards the latter part of that year, we had 9-11. And, and uh, the, really, the bear market really took force in more in 2002 than in yeah. 2001. 2001, markets churned around a bit. There were lots of traps out there. But it was actually 2002 when the recession hit and markets really fell quite precipitously. I mean, I think the S&P 500 was down about 50% from its peak in 2000 to its low in in March of 2003. So I defended capital very well during that period. So that got me off to a, a good start mm. from the point of view uh, of launching the fund effectively and beginning to attract um, third-party money. But you, I mean, your track record has been amazing because you've only had two down years, right? So 2018, you were down 3%. Yeah. 2022, you're down 4%. Yeah. Which is quite, I mean, there a lot of people would give their right arms to have only been down 4% in 2022, let alone <laughs> <laughs> the other years. Um, I know, of course, you don't have blowout years either, but your no, best year no, was no, no. 2010, yeah. because you were up 15. Yeah. But I, I just wondered, I mean, how do you protect the downside so effectively? I mean, talk a little bit about your process and you've, you've got different buckets. And yeah. So one of the things that I'm always looking to do is to, to avoid what I call torpedoes, sort of traps that, 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 that where the trap door opens up, you get a massive profits warning and you get share prices falling by you know, 50, 70%. You get permanent capital loss. That's always the thing that I put in place right at the beginning of the process uh, was when doing the stock picking was to try and find those companies, not overpay because obviously there's big valuation risk. If you pay 50 times earnings for something, you've got a lot of valuation risk. If you pay 15 times earnings, you've got a lot less valuation risk. So valuation risk being important, but more importantly, it's, it's the quality. It's the quality of that business. And I know quality is sort of slightly overplayed these days. But what I mean by quality is just consistent returns, not highly volatile returns, not returns where there's the possibility of a really meaningful cyclical downturn. I mean, I mentioned house builders earlier. I haven't invested in house builders um, because there is that potential, and we're seeing it. I mean, over the last 18 months, house builder shares are down about 50%. And why is that? Well, people have stopped buying houses because interest rates have gone up. Uh, and when they stop buying houses, actually, that means that the cash flows in those businesses go backwards very, very quickly. Uh, and that's exactly what I'm looking to avoid. Similarly with banks, I've never owned a retail bank during the life of the fund. So the joy of the way that, that I run money is that I can avoid these places where... Um, there's, I think, much higher risk. Uh, and the nice thing that, you know, Lord Weinstock sort of said to me, when I said to him, what benchmark do you want? He said, I, I'm not interested in a benchmark. You know, just don't lose my money. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, it's, it's, it's about capital preservation. It's about not giving me an unpleasant journey. It's about, you know, the market goes down 30. I don't think, I'm not going to be impressed if you're down 25, which is exactly where I'd come from running institutional money. That was precisely where I'd come from. So it needed a change of mentality. Mm. But what it did is it made me realize that I could invest in the companies that I liked and those stable businesses rather than and ignoring all of the very fragile businesses which um, when it came to difficult periods of, of economic growth um, led to a uh, much weaker share price performance. And the other example that I always give, and, and actually you're very kind, you didn't include the, um, the down year that I had in 2013, so I have three down years oh, in, three. In, oh, in, no, 20, just... in 22 years, um, but, uh, at least as far as I can remember. But anyway, um, that was a particularly poor year because it was the year that IAG, which is British Airways, was the best performing stock in the FTSE. And I've always said I wouldn't own airlines, and particularly I wouldn't own IAG. And one of the things that all of these companies actually have in common on the whole is that when times get difficult, they issue new share capital. And one of the things that I really like to look at when I'm looking at a stock is that the number of shares in issue over a period of time are actually falling, that the chief executive and the finance director are thinking, how can we create long-term value for our shareholders? Well, one of the ways they can do that is actually shrink their shareholder capital and really look after their shareholders that way. And that's a very long-term way. You, could, you don't do that in a, in a day or a week or a month. And it's something that 
short-term investors don't focus on, but long-term investors really focus on, because that's how long-term value is really created. If you look at a company like Diageo, its number of shares an issue, if you look on a Bloomberg screen, each year from about 1997, when the company was formed, just gradually grinds lower and lower and lower. If you look at IAG, the number of shares an issue went up by 60% during the pandemic. If you look at um, HSBC or Barclays, the number of shares in issue has du doubled through the financial crisis. So you've got, you know, you've got lower profits and more shares in issue. It's not a great combination to create long-term value compared to um, consistent profits and falling numbers of shares in issue, which gives you an increasing amount of capital. If you own one share in that business or 10 shares in that business, you're obviously increasing your capital through that compounding. So those are the kind of companies that I look at from the point of view of the equity side. And the other side, side of the coin is that I do look from a strategic point of view as to where the value is, and in particular, you know, having a view on the stock market, on where the stock market is, and how highly the stock market's valued, or how lowly the stock market is valued. And I think from, from my perspective, in terms of running the fund, I need to be paid to take risk. If I'm not paid to take risk, i.e. valuations are too high, then I'll take less risk. If valuations are very low, as they were during the uh, 2007 to 2009 financial crisis, or by, by the end of that, or in 2003 after the, uh, the bear market that we had in the early 2000s, markets are compellingly valued. I will increase my equity allocation quite meaningfully if markets are more expensive. If the if one of the things I use is the cyclically adjusted P. If the cyclically adjusted P is, it was in the in the 40s back in the dot com boom, back in the end of 2021 during that crazy period, the GameStop period, and the crazy period of profitless tech doing incredibly well. You know, we reined back our equity allocation quite materially during that period because we weren't paid to take risk. So there's a combination of the qualitative side of the qualitative value side of the stock picking, and then there is the actual decision on how much risk one wants to take in terms of equity risk. Uh, and then we will also have, coming back to your question about performance and how we've generated that performance in terms of that, that hopefully that sleep at night experience for our investors uh, and not having those very big drawdown years um, so that actually we can make, we can positively compound. Um, we do that through also other assets like gold, for example, or index linked or or other assets. We in the past we've used investment trusts that are on wide discounts. So it's it's been a, we've been on a sort of little bit of a journey. Um, also we've we've invested in. Uh, I started off at the beginning of the fund's life investing in probably in more UK equities. As the time has evolved uh, and as my spirit experience has evolved, that's probably been more in favour of the US equity market than the UK equity market. So so the whole the process is not something that's static. It does actually evolve over time. It's quite funny, you, the, this idea of upping and, and downing your, your weighting to, to equities. Because you see a lot of commentators talking about time in the market versus timing the market. And the other day, somebody talked about that one of the, I think it was a bulge bracket bank had issued a report saying that if you'd missed the 200 best days in the market since 1928, you'd have made 3%, not 10,003%. Or, you know, the, the, why is this such a popular refrain? Is it because people that is quite find a broker's refrain, if I may say so, because that's what they're incentivized to do is to get people to invest. Um, one of the persons that I had when, when I was at GC, the gentleman that was running the GC pension fund, who was a bit of a legend, was a chap called Peter Olney, and uh, he once said to me, "Do you know? Do you know why stockbrokers have more buys or ten more buys than they do sells?" I went, "Well, yeah, I think I know, but tell me anyway." Uh, well because you've only got probably 50 stocks in your portfolio. But, you know, the way that they're going to get more stocks, the way that they're going to get you to be more active is to have more buys than to have sales. And so um, there is an incentive to do that. I once wrote a report a long time ago um, about what happens if you miss the worst days, because, of course, the worst days are the most extreme falls rather than the best days, which are probably up to or 3%. You know, you miss those horrible days like in 2002 or you lose the horrible days as in 2008, as we did. You know, you can protect a lot of capital. But I think the other thing is, is and I totally accept the whole time in the market argument um, for, for those who are fully invested. But that's for pension funds, institutional investors, private investors 
who wants who've made their wealth like wealthy families you know they don't necessarily want that sort of institutional type return with the volatility that comes with it so the key thing is is that they probably do not have the wherewithal to have experienced 50% drawdowns it's just something that they would feel extremely uncomfortable experiencing and and private investors as a rule hate losing money a lot more than they like making money. Oh, yeah. yeah. And and so from that point of view, and this is the thing that uh, Lord Weistock instilled to me, that as a private investor, there's a different mentality to one that I had before as an institutional investor where I was just judged on beat the all share, you know, plus 1% every year and you'll be doing your job. That is not what many private investors want. And that's this is the thing why I think you know, that, that's the differentiator that, that Troy has, particularly as a long-only investor. Uh, obviously, hedge funds are trying to do this, but as a long-only investor, we were unusual, if not unique, at trying to generate positive, absolute returns without those very material drawdowns um, as a long-only investor. Long-only investors generally would educate their, their investors to expect to experience very high levels of volatility. But actually, many, many private investors don't want to tolerate that. No, no, sure. I, I completely get that. If you enjoy this podcast, you're bound to enjoy our free newsletter on Substack. It's a weekly email on interesting investing topics. Visit BehindTheBalanceSheet.com and hit the sign up button. While you're there, you might want to check out our brilliant online investor training school. Hundreds of students have taken our flagship Analyst Academy course, which teaches you everything you need to become a serious equity investor. And if you're a professional investor, we run a forensic accounting course for institutional clients and soon a cohort-based course for serious amateurs. Email us at info at behindthebalancesheet.com. So we'll come back to the non-equity bit of the yeah. portfolio, but just an equity bit. So we're talking about you only hold quality equities yeah. and you've got a list of a couple of hundred stocks yeah in our universe in your universe so yeah. how can you just explain so how do you screen for stocks to include in that universe so i think it's essentially one of the things that i did uh when we started to build up the team at troy's we've got 14 people on the investment team now and obviously it started off just with me on day one one of the things that i instilled onto the more junior analysts is to look back at the company's track record I mentioned that you know Diageo are reducing its shares year in year out. It's actually looking back over the last ten years, and you could say, well, that, well, that's backward looking. And by investing in equities, you want to be forward looking and optimistic and think about the future. But I think the past can give you a really good indication as to how that business has performed, its own track record, if you like, its own track record of how it's performed, you know, the profits that it's generated, how it's rewarded its shareholders the surplus cash that it's had or not, as the case may be. If it hasn't had surplus cash, you know, how has it invested? Has it invested well? Has it allocated capital poorly? So all of these questions, you know, how has the management performed? Has there been large turnover in the management? Or has actually there been low turnover in the management, which is certainly what we would want to look at, look for. So there are a number of factors, but they're all looking backwards. That To give that mirror that give that idea of the track record of how has this business done and importantly from a stock then then you bring the stock market into it and you say well actually for most of the time that stock is probably valued fairly if not generously because higher quality businesses are generally valued quite fully by the market they're not cheap you know if you can buy them at fair prices you'll be doing well and on the whole you just need to wait and be patient for those opportunities. And the key thing is, is those opportunities come rarely. You know, they come once every five years, once every 10 years. And so the other thing that we do is we endeavor to buy those companies, buy into those good businesses, those higher quality businesses, when investors, for whatever reason, are slightly looking the other way. They're never going to be totally out. They're never going to be so depressed that they're going to be, you know, on frankly, on five or even 10 times earnings. But they might get to the stage where they're on mid-teens multiples, where you can make a very nice double-digit return from those levels. And all of those opportunities don't tend to come at once. They'll tend to be a, a reason for whatever it is, COVID, um, you know, a more difficult trading environment. And one, one of the stocks that we bought into this year is Heineken. Heineken clearly had a very difficult COVID because people didn't go to pubs. 
Uh, and then they had a difficult period coming out of COVID because their costs rose because the cost of producing uh, beer increased, uh, you know, energy costs in particular. Uh, and so they had a difficult period during COVID and actually a difficult period after COVID. But the shares have gone nowhere for five years. That's the sort of thing that I look for. I'm looking for people just generally sort of actually a little bit fed up. We mm. know it's a good company, but actually hasn't done very well recently. We're a bit bored of it. That's where the D rating comes in. That's where the low rating is. So from the point of view of you as an investor getting in at that moment, your downside actually is relatively minimal. Also, it's the kind of business which if things continue to deteriorate, sentiment deteriorates, markets go down, actually, it's the kind of business that you'll have the confidence to add to it. The problem with investing in a, a very heavily cyclical business, um, and, which we saw with things like the banks earlier this year with, with Silicon Valley Bank um, and Credit Suisse, is that when things go bad, you don't have the confidence to buy more. In fact, you're probably more likely to sell because suddenly things change and there's real value destruction. Whereas in the sorts of businesses that we're talking about, there isn't that long-term value destruction. At worst, they might be a bit dull. But if you buy them well, you'll get some really nice, good, positive returns from them. That's very clear. And the, the, the universe that you um, pick from, does that change much? I mean, is that kind of like set in stone or... How do you find a you know a new ad or yeah. do, you, do you ever delete companies? Yeah, no, 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 we do delete companies. We delete companies if, for whatever reason, we feel it. I mean, we have a sort of annual weeding um, <laughs> uh, that we go through. If we feel, I think, if we feel it's been in the universe for a while, we're less comfortable with it. We're less confident in the business. Actually, there's something over here that we feel more comfortable about that is of better quality. Then we will have a weed out. There's not. It's not dramatic. You know, there's probably 10 things in, 10 things out a year. Um, but I think you do need to refresh somewhat. It, yeah. you know, it, companies aren't set in aspect. I always think that a business is something that's organic Absolutely, rather than yeah. not. You know, it depends on personal capital. It depends on the people who are running it. It depends on, you know, the brands that they own. It, it, it's all sorts of issues there that make a company... Uh, in a good position to ultimately to to grow and create value for its shareholders, you know. And that you, one of the things as a sort of bit of a financial historian geek is I look back and see how things like the FTSE 100 has changed over the time of my career. I mean, there were I think there were only about ten or fifteen companies that were in the FTSE in 1989 that are still in the FTSE today. So there's been a huge evolution of companies which have gradually waned and disappeared. And there are these uh, new companies that have ultimately come in. And so we need to be aware of that from the point of view of uh, when we are picking stocks. I mean, what, you know, in the, in the mid-90s, you'd have been very happy owning newspaper businesses or, or magazine companies um, in a way that, you know, frankly, 10 years later, with the advent of the internet, you most definitely wouldn't want to own those businesses. And they were essentially wasting assets. So you do need to adapt your, your investment process but hopefully we do it gradually rather than dramatically. It's interesting. I was just laughing when you you were saying about the stocks that lasted from 1989 because I thank goodness that BTR finally <laughs> imploded. So I, I was talking to Sebastian before we, we started recording about my cell note on BTR, which uh, really made my really made my career. When it comes to actually picking stocks in the portfolio, I mean, how many equities would you typically have in, in the portfolio? Well, I believe in a real concentrated list. I, I believe in the, the whole Peter Lynch argument of know what you own, know why you own it. And actually, pretty much leave it alone if you possibly can. You know, activity is not a good thing. Um, one of my friends who is an investor who I regard very highly, very carefully looks at if he hadn't done that piece of activity, you know, a year later or two years later, how would the portfolio look? Would it have, was it a good decision or was it actually a poor decision? Would it have been better off just leaving it alone? And I think that's a very good acid test. So um, the answer is, is we, we own between 15 and 30 stocks. If we've got a very low equity exposure, which actually we have at the moment, we've probably got about 15. Um, we've had as much as low 30s uh, when we've been sort of 70, 80%, 75% invested in stocks. So um, that's the sort of range. So I think it's really important to to really know those businesses well, to understand them. So they're not just lights on the screen. 
uh, in terms of share prices. They're businesses that we know and understand and can value. And you know, if things go don't go right, we're comfortable enough to think, right, okay, you know, it's it's been derated. We're we're happy to buy more. We're happy to step in, rather than think we've got it wrong. We've got the confidence to be able to do that. So. Um, so a concentrated portfolio rather than having a very long tail, which I think if you have a very long tail, the things become a distraction. And actually, they're not going to make a big difference to your performance mm. anyway. So they absorb time, um, but actually they're not going to make a positive contribution to your returns in the long term. And what, what are you comfortable having in a single stock? Well, we, Francis Brooke and I talked about this when, when he joined me and we, we launched the income fund, the UK income fund back in 2004. And we thought about this because we, the two of us had come out of the ni- late 1990s where, um, I mean, the, the, the microcosm of this was that Vodafone became, I think it became 13% of the, either the all share or the FTSE 100, but it definitely became, it was over 10% of the all share at one point. And people were falling over themselves to buy this company because it was such a large part of the index, not thinking about the valuation, which got up to 75 times earnings during the dot-com boom. And so we really felt, um, and this comes back to thinking about absolute returns rather than relative returns and being worried about the index constituents. We thought the first thing is we, we, we won't structure the portfolio in any way along index lines. And the second thing was that we would have a maximum of well, we'd have a largest holding of around 5%. And, and if it ever got to 6 we would definitely trim it. So there was a risk reduction, uh, natural risk reduction in place that we would, we would actually, and I know that there is a view to, to run winners and, and let your winners run, but I think that's only up to a point. And I think actually, fortunately, uh, we did this back in 2021 when we had large holdings in Alphabet and, and Microsoft, which did really well we did make sure that we trimmed those. And it was just as well, because obviously in 2022, they both were quite weak with the, the falls in the NASDAQ. So um, I think it's actually a good discipline. It's, you're not adding, or you're not just running things for the sake of it. You're actually managing your risk. And this is the difference between running the kind of portfolio that I'm running with a wealth preservation bias and somebody who's, who's trying to beat the equity market on medium and even short-term basis, which we're not trying to do. So it's a, it's a different mentality. Sure. But that's so, and, and I, I don't really like holdings being less than 1% because again, coming back to what I was saying earlier, they're not going to make a difference. So if they're 1%, it's clearly something which is either on its way out or it's very much on its way in. So, and that's 5% of the total portfolio. Of the so total portfolio, not of the equity part of the equity portfolio. Equity and that's a very good point. I look at it from the total portfolio perspective, not just, I don't look at the equity part of the portfolio as some sort of sliver. Because if I increased my equity exposure, I'd increase my number of holdings by probably double. Yeah. So it's a, it's a different mentality from thinking, that's my equity sliver, therefore I'm thinking about that as an equity portfolio in its own right. It's interesting because... What that then means is that, so you say the stock market has a big fall. You've already got your 15 most favorite stocks. So you've now got to take yeah. fi- find 15, the next cool. 15. Yeah. yeah. And well, and we've got a waiting list of, we, we call it a waiting room, of probably about a double the size of the number of holdings that we have. So we've got probably another 30 that we're looking at all the time. Every week we have a multi-asset meeting uh, where the teams, the four of us sit down and we talk through um, that and have a look at that and make sure that we haven't missed something. So we're always, we've always got a sort of waiting room there, uh, as well as they obviously monitoring the existing holdings. And does that mean you've got quite a turnover or you've got... No, no, no. Turn- our turnover is very, very low. But Steve, sometimes our turnover goes up a lot. Yeah. So most of the time, our turnover is less than 10%. Mm. But there will t- be times like 2020 during the pandemic, where we increased our exposure by... 50% uh, from 30% to 45% within the space of literally a few weeks. Um, there'll be times like 2008, 2009, where we actually dub- almost double the size of the equity part of the portfolio, uh, and, and 2002, 2003 as well, where we've increased materially uh, the equity portfolio. And there, obviously, the turnover shoots up during that very short yeah. period. Mm. But generally speaking, we like low turnover. So that would be the norm. You know, most most days, most weeks, most months, most years, turnover would be low. And then there would be these periods of like 2020 of sort of hyperactivity. So you won't be the broker's first call. Uh, Sadly not. How sad. Yeah. <laughs> so 
I mean, one of the things I like about your philosophy, and one of the reasons I asked you to come to the podcast, so you're very clear about what you do. You and one of your principles is to favor the simple over the complex. I was wondering, was that just a result of accumulated experience, or was it a single event that made you go, "Oh, complex is 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 risky"? I think it was um, really how my career evolved in the through the '90s, and just trying to avoid complexity, which generally you can also read as traps. You know, if you think of all of the financial complexity that we had before the financial crisis, all the, the CDOs and the CDSs and mm. everything that people really didn't understand. They certainly didn't understand the implications for the wider economy of those of that level of debt that was effectively obfuscated from the system and then became very, very evident very, very quickly. So I think that I've always liked clarity, um, simplicity of business models, because frankly, if you're running a very, very complex business, it's going to be harder to run. If you're running a actually a simple business that's selling a simple product, it's going to be an awful lot easier to run. And so I try and think about it from the point of view: of, if I was the CEO, you know, how easy would this business be to run? Or you know, I mean, think about Frank. Think about running a bank. I mean, they are such complicated beasts to to run. If you think about the fact that in our careers, you know, a report and accounts of a bank has just the number of pages has just gone exponential. I mean, it was probably. 30 pages in 1989, it's now probably 500 pages. I can tell you because uh, the Sunday Times asked me to do an article about, I think their 50th anniversary, 60th anniversary, and they got, I said, well, get me a 50-year-old set of accounts. And the only one they could find was the Midland Bank. And the Midland Bank in whatever it was, the the accounts were like 18 pages. And the year that I looked at it, HSB, obviously HSBC yeah, now. over, yeah. it was 520 pages yeah. for the main yeah. accounts. And then there were, uh, there were about 2,000 pages of other... I rest my case. Yeah. So that's why the simplicity works, actually. Um, and the thing is that, that within finance, uh, people love complexity. They absolutely love it. There's nothing that gets them more excited than deltas and gammas. And I mean, every single uh, Greek letter under the sun. Uh, yeah. As soon as people start mentioning Greek letters, I start sort of shaking and getting, <laughs> feeling very terribly uncomfortable. Um, I think we try and over-sophisticate it. And, and, and also, I think it's partly a function of the fact that I know that our end clients, are a lot of them are, are private investors. Some of them are actually very sophisticated private investors, but some of them aren't so sophisticated. So there's no way that I want to sort of bamboozle them or, or surprise them by owning something which is more complex than, than, you know, frankly, that I can understand clearly. So, I mean, it comes back to that Peter Lynch, know what you own, know why you own it. It's so important. There's no need to add a great deal of complexity. I think that it's, it's so much better to, to, to keep things simple. No, I, I absolutely agree. Now, you place quite a bit of emphasis on the macro. I mean, obviously, yeah. that's partly because you're running a multi-asset can you talk a little bit about you know how you do that? What parameters you use? How do you monitor the economy? It's a very complicated world. What it is a complicated world, and one of the things I don't do is I don't spend a lot of time looking at what economists are doing or saying. What I oh, love... no, no, come on! I we've no, no, got it's... a couple of mutual friends that are economists. Well, they're probably not economists; they're probably strategists. That's different. Ah, so so I have found reading over the last twenty twenty five years. The likes of Chris Wood, who you've had on your program, the likes of Russell Napier, the likes of um, David Roach at Independent Strategy. I've got a number of sort of inputs, if you like. Um, Chris Wood was particularly, and actually David Roach, were particularly helpful during finding my way through the financial crisis um, in particular. So, but they're not economists, actually, these people. Um, I think Chris Wood is an economist. He actually says in this, well, you can take this offline. He actually says in this week's Green Fear, I am not an economist. Oh, does he? Yeah. I haven't read it He's yet. He's a journalist. Well, he's, he I'll send journalist. it to you. He I'll send it to you. He's yeah. a journalist. Um, and he was at The Economist and obviously I think South China Post or something. And then then he became, he, he started writing Greed and Fear at, um, at, at CLSA and now obviously at Jefferies. Um, but those sort of people help to give me a little bit of a map. There's no, there's no right answer out there. And I think from our point of view, in terms of the macro and in terms of multi-asset, it is... It's about more about avoiding the traps rather than finding the mega wins. It's more about avoiding those horrible pitfalls 
but also it gives guidance in terms of where we should be looking, where internationally we should be looking, you know, which area is doing well, which area is doing less well. We tend not to invest in, we tend to invest in developed markets. That doesn't mean that we can't invest, get exposure to emerging markets at all. But we prefer to, coming back to keeping it simple, we prefer to do it with the governance that multinationals provide rather than investing directly in emerging markets where we've got less, less proximity. The language is different. The governance is different. The accounts, to your point, is different. So um, we tend to, we're not shy of investing in emerging markets, but we'd rather do it that way rather than do it directly. And obviously, the, the bias within the portfolio has been very much between those, those three main markets, the UK, Europe, and, and US, and more recently US. But, but I found that strategists, good strategists, have, and strategists with, with a long-term, long-term parameters. So they're thinking very strategically. And one of the things that's fascinating at the moment, which Chris Wood has, has highlighted, and I don't know whether he mentioned this when he was on your podcast, is the whole regime change of what's going on with long-term interest rates. That's huge. And it's, it's got long-term ramifications. We've lived in a world for the last 40 years, before I, 10 years before I started my career, of falling interest rates. Interest rates, 10-year treasury yields peaked at whatever it was, 14% in 1981. They had been falling and falling and falling and falling all the way to COVID. And COVID, they troughed in July, July August of 2020 at 0.5%, 10-year treasuries. And since today, I think they're at 4.5%. So we are in a, a new world from the point of view of investing. And it's listening to people like Chris Wood who highlight those things, which I think if you were a particularly just a very narrow, stock-picking, 100% equity invested, just purely looking at, say, just the UK market and not looking with a more broader lens, you wouldn't necessarily pick up on that. And yet that has huge ramifications which the, for the way that you might need to invest over the next decade, two decades maybe, because it implies that we're in a higher inflationary environment, a higher interest rate environment, and probably valuations ultimately need to be lower, whereas we've lived in a world where valuations have got higher and higher and higher and higher. So those sort of, those, th that backcloth helps me both in terms of structuring the portfolio and to think about where investment opportunities may or may not be. So if a company's been re-rated very materially, as many companies have been re-rated over the last decade, decade and a half since the financial crisis, and they're doing exactly the same thing they were doing in, 2000, in 2010, but their valuations are on 50 times or 30 times rather than 15 times that they were on because of the discount rate, then I think you need to take note. So this is very interesting because I've been talking about this a lot, actually, and, and writing about it a lot in my weekly Substack, which if listeners haven't subscribed, it is free and well worth doing. But the, the interesting, and in fact, um, on this month, so we're recording this in September, this month's podcast with Alec Cutler. And we talked at length about this layer cake of inflation and other factors though, because we've had falling interest rates, favorable demographics, disinflation. All these things are now headwinds. And the tide we, is ebbing out. Yeah. So, than... I mean... Are we going to be sitting here in 10 years' time, stock market's going to be the same level? Or There's certainly a risk. I think that there are always opportunities, and that, that's the thing. We've always got to look for those opportunities. That's what we're paid to do. But I think I mentioned earlier that you want to look for, particularly in the way that we go about investing, uh, find things that people aren't really looking at, people are ignoring. The opposite is obviously the things that people are terribly excited about that have been re-rated very materially because of earnings momentum. And I think that you know, investors, to some extent, have had it easy over the last decade. You know, interest rates have been zero. We've had QE, which has found its way into the cracks of all the sort of financial markets. We're clearly having a period where QE is, is, is less important. And actually, we're having QT uh, in Europe, um, in the UK, and in the US. Um, and interest rates are higher. The cost of capital is higher. And you think, think of the 10-year... Treasury yield at four and a half. Well, on top of that, you need an equity risk premium of call it two or three percent. So you're looking at a cost of capital now that was, you know, frankly, very low single digits to a cost of capital now that's, you know, high single digits. It's a very, very big change. And what it means, I think, is, is that not the whole stock market might be flat over a, a decade, but and obviously we did see that in between 1966 and 1980. 
And again, we saw it really between two, certainly in the UK, between 2000 and about 2015 or something like that, stock market really went sideways. So stock markets can go sideways for a long time. They don't necessarily always have to go up. And actually, that's how bear markets tend to play out. They don't tend to play out necessarily. They, there are some nasty down legs and drawdowns, but sometimes they just are quite boring and they just go sideways. And it's during a period where earnings are rising. It's just that the multiples are contracting. Yeah. So you actually look back and you think, and I, I remember this with something like a Microsoft. Microsoft back in 2000 was on 75 times earnings. By the time I was fortunate enough to buy it back in 2010, it was on 10 times earnings. Yeah. And that wasn't because the earnings had collapsed. The earnings had grown into the, into the rating and the shares had fallen somewhat. But actually, it was the shares, the earnings had continued to grow. The company had continued to grow. It was just the fact that at 75 times earnings, all of that was well known by the market and probably it extrapolated too far. And then all of a sudden, ten, a decade later, you know, nobody wanted to know uh, and nobody wanted to own it. And so it's a question of looking for those sorts of opportunities. But the answer is there will be parts of the market, I suspect, to answer your question, that maybe do go nowhere for a, quite a while. Maybe maybe it's not 10 years, maybe it's five years. It's a good uh, Apple on 29 times earnings last time I looked. I mean, it's hard to yeah, see it why could, it shouldn't be on 15 or 17. 15 or 20. Yeah. yeah. And so that's a bit of a journey to get through, even if the earnings actually do come through. And that's going to hurt quite a lot of so-called quality investors. So, I, I mean, do you think you, I mean, can you foresee a situation in which you're going to have to be a bit more nimble? Because uh, to me, this is kind of like a special situations type market where in order to make money, you've got to be a bit more nimble, take a bit more risk, to do, have a bit higher turnover. Not necessarily. I mean, I think, I think the quality investing clearly has been in vogue for the last decade, really. And it's looked after investors incredibly well. That might continue. I suspect because of what I've mentioned about discount rates, um, I suspect that things might be a bit more, returns might be a bit more modest, mm. a bit more dull. So you will probably need to be a little bit more savvy. Uh, and I think that, and one of the things that we've done over the last 23 years of running the portfolio is it's not been the same over that period. There have, we've looked at other opportunities. One of the things that we've been looking at is the potential for buying, you know, we're recognizing that one of the very big change changes, coming back to your point about you know, stickier inflation, sort of onshoring demographics being difference. One of the very material changes as well is the rise in fiscal. And we've seen obviously the IRA, the, the um, Inflation Reduction Act, which is a huge fiscal stimulus. And so whereas in the QE era, money was finding its way into the financial system, now it's finding its way into the wider economy. That was the really big change that happened during COVID. And yeah. I suspect is going to carry on. If that's the case, then Businesses that actually haven't done terribly well over the last decade or so, one of which would be industrials, will probably do somewhat better. And so if we can buy higher quality industrials, that may be an area. So I think we just need to think laterally in the same way that when we launched the fund, we weren't buying, you know, we weren't necessarily buying um, Microsoft. We bought Microsoft in 2010. If we'd have bought Microsoft in 2001, we'd have, we'd have lost money for quite a long period of time. That shows the qualitative value and the emphasis on the value rather than just, just the quality. It's got to be both. So there is a, there is a value side to it. It's funny um, because, you know, people are so obsessive about value investors having low price to book. I mean, it's a bit daft, the, the nomenclature. So why do you own gold? So gold, uh, we have owned since 2004, 2005. And there are a number of reasons why we own gold. The first thing is it is a very effective diversifier. Some of our peers in the multi-asset space like to use derivatives. The thing about derivatives, um, Steve, coming back to your point about not necessarily being stockbrokers' friends, is that they make money for investment banks, but they don't necessarily make money for the people who are using derivatives. They are very expensive, not very cost-effective, and sometimes they do what you want them to do, but actually quite often they don't. You're paying effectively an insurance premium time and time and time again. And that, if we'd have done that, we'd have had, frankly, lower returns mm. than we've had. So gold has a role to play in that perspective, in terms of portfolio protection. Because when things get really difficult, people tend to have a flight to gold. 
So you saw that during the financial crisis, you saw that during the Euro crisis, you saw that during COVID, you saw that during the invasion of Ukraine. So when things get really difficult and there's a huge amount of uncertainty, people tend to have a flight to gold. Gold tends to go up when other things tend to go down. So it has a portfolio construction point of view of risk reduction. But the other thing is, and I always say, we won't hold gold forever. We feel um, and would agree with the likes of Chris Wood and, and Russell Napier that we're in an era of financial repression. And by that, I mean we're in an era where inflation is likely to be higher than the prevailing interest rates. When I started the Trojan Fund back in 2001, interest rates were at about 5% and inflation was at 2 to 3%. We lived in an era of positive real rates. I remember Lord Weinstein had quite a bit of money in cash at the time. And why wouldn't you? Even after tax, you protected the real value of your capital by having money in the bank. Today, and actually for quite a long time, that really since the financial crisis, that has not been the case. And I suspect that because governments have got so much debt now, the one way they can get their debt down is by deflating it through through it by, by inflating their way out of the problem. And so gold, as the one currency that cannot be debased, has a role to play on that basis as well. So we've seen a lot of debasement, particularly actually in sterling. If you think since 2007, sterling got to 211 against cable. Today, it's 122. So... I don't, so, don't, so it's, don't tell me, because I used to earn in dollars back then. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only so, too familiar. So I bet you wish you earned dollars now. So, um, so, look, there has been a debasement of paper currencies over the last decade, decade and a half. And in real terms, particularly with inflation having been higher recently, that debasement is, has been more painful. So gold has, it doesn't always do what you expect it to do, but over the long term, it has done. Um, if you look at since we invested in 2005, January 2005, the gold price was around $400 an ounce. Today, it's around $1,900 an ounce. In sterling terms, if you haven't hedged your back into dollars, in sterling terms, you would have made around 11% per annum over that period. Yes, it's been bumpy, but, you, uh, but it's been uncorrelated with, uh, with other asset classes. And you've made 9% in dollars. So it's been a really good diversifier. Um, as I say, you know, if we go back to a world where interest rates are, are five, six percent and inflation's at two, I won't need to own gold. We'll be in an era of sound money, as mm. Margaret Thatcher would used to have called it. But unfortunately, we're not in an era of sound money at the moment. And I don't see, in the next few years at least, any prospect of returning to an era of sound money. Chris Wood and I are slightly surprised that gold isn't higher. Are you surprised by that? Um, or you don't care? Uh, no, I do care, obviously. Um, but sometimes it's... I, I actually would disagree with that a little bit in that I, I do like to look at gold in other currencies other than the dollar. Obviously, I look at it in sterling, um, but you can look at it in the euros and in yen and other currencies because actually it's the dollar's been incredibly strong. Yeah, that's true. And so, frankly, if you're, if you're Brazilian or Argentinian and you've got gold, you are laughing. If you're an American you're thinking, well, this is a bit boring. Mm. If you're British, you're thinking, actually, it's, it's, it's done all right. Um, so I think you need to look at it in the different currencies. But I think, coming back to your question of, has it been a bit dull, has it been a bit disappointing in the very recent past? I think one of the reasons is, is that interest rates have risen. You know, we're not in a zero interest rate no, any, environment yeah. anymore. And I think there is an alternative. You know, Tina is long, sadly, been taken out and uh, she's long gone. And therefore, uh, there is now an alternative for, for cash. Um, you can get 5% um, or 6.2% uh, if you buy national savings. So there is an alternative now. So I've actually been quite impressed how resilient gold has been in a period where I know it's nominal rates rather than real rates, but nominal rates have, have risen. So I haven't been overly disappointed. I was pleased with how obviously it performed during Ukraine and during the pandemic. At the margin, it may have surprised me a little bit, but I think actually particularly since rates you know, have risen to from very low single digits or zero to mid single digits. I think it's actually held up pretty well. Yeah, no, this is a very fair point. Now, everybody's got a podcast these days, including Troy Asset Management and your colleague Tom Yort uh, on the Global Equities team is the host of your podcast. And I've really enjoyed it. And we had a chat I think, when he was quite starting out. Yeah. And I said, well, you know, if you want to grow the podcast, you need to get some good guests on. And he's had some 
crackers. I'm actually quite jealous. <laughs> but why did you start this endeavor? Is it a marketing exercise? And what have you learned from it? Because you, you've participated in some of them. Because you participated with Kirill. I participated, yeah, with Kirill. I participated in the sort of strategy ones. So I've done Gerald Minak and Kirill Sokolov. So when they're strategists, I tend to come in. Um, and then when it's it's sort of stock pickers, Tommy Oert, as you mentioned, and, and George Viney on our Global Equity team, they host it. It was Tom's idea. He came to us with the idea. As you say, everybody was doing podcasts. We thought we wanted a slightly different angle. Uh, Francis and I have always felt about Troy that we are an outward-looking company, that we've always got things to learn from other investors. And that actually just having a, an in-house podcast where we just gave our views really wouldn't show us necessarily in the best light. And, and we actually thought people would sort of get tired of it after a while if it was just quarterly updates. We thought that wasn't really what it was about. And it was about learning from other investors. And people do this in so many different ways. There are so many ways to skin this particular investment cat that we wanted to learn from, from others. And obviously, we've, you know, fortunate enough, as you say, to have some good contacts and people who were prepared to come on and talk about the way that they invested. And we'd intersperse that with our own occasional updates, but have other people's views and not just the Troy view. I don't know why I asked that, because the last thing I want to do is encourage <laughs> more competition in the podcast business. There's plenty now, of room for everybody. Well, I don't know, because I think the listenership's peaked already. And there's a huge, I mean, there's a huge number of podcasts yeah, around. Are, yeah. But um, now training. I was at a conference last week, yeah. and I was talking to some allocators in the break. And I explained, you know, my businesses, I train professional investors to improve their efficiency and effectiveness in analyzing financial statements. And I asked them about the training policies for the funds they invest in. And they, they looked at me completely blankly. They did no idea, no even concept of training being something that they would ask about. Now, obviously, you're a client of mine, and I know you've got a policy of continuous improvement. You mm. take staff development seriously because your whole front office team took the, the forensic accounting course. Can you just explain why you've made that investment? Because obviously, my fees are quite expensive, but it's the time of the people is a, is a big cost. Why do you think it's important to do that? I think it's really important from the point of view of continuous improvement. And markets are changing. Markets are evolving all the time. Companies are evolving. And so I think, and the other thing is, is that I think you can leapfrog with good training. You can take that step. One of the things that I've insisted on doing uh, for all new employees of the investment team is that they go on on Russell Napier's financial history course. It's two days, but it takes them back. It takes them back to what happened during the dot-com boom for people who weren't around during the dot-com boom. What happened during times of high inflation in the 60s and in particular in the 70s to equity markets? What happened during the 1930s? What happened during the 1920s? How did stocks react? How did bond markets react? How did multiples expand? How did they contract? You know, that is those sort of experiences you you need to know. I think in order to, it makes you a better investor if you know that that history. Of course, history doesn't repeat itself, but you can it can give you a, a Absolutely. guide. And so I think that that sort of training, in addition to obviously uh, the sort of accountancy training and the, particularly the issues of you know not falling into traps. I mean, we don't invest in a lot of of small caps, which I think is usually where, you know, that, that's not exclusive. I mean, I can remember Polly Peck and, uh, and obviously we've seen, we've seen other, uh, other sort of disasters um, in the UK market where, you know, you've had permanent capital loss and, and things have been, uh, share prices have been wiped out in a matter of days. But I think that, you know, if you can recognize those experiences and see those experiences uh, and something you may or may not have experienced them, then um, I think it, it will just make you a better investor. And it also comes back to the our old investment policy of avoiding those pitfalls, avoiding those traps. You're much more likely to be avoiding those. You're much more likely to be able to you know, have the, the, the private eye test or the smell test and think, oh, yeah, no, that, that's, that's definitely a wrong and we, we, can give that a, we can give that a wide berth and hopefully give those, give those accidents a miss and therefore hopefully you know, from the point of view of our clients uh, avoid them from enduring that pain basically. I've actually, I felt a bit embarrassed because Russell said, you haven't been on the course. I went <gasps> on the course and, and the Russell's History of Financial Markets course will be 
in October. So by the time this is this goes out, it will be in the past. But there's one in Singapore, and it'll be yeah. one's next one next year. And he's now got it online. Yeah. So if the listeners are are interested, they can email me. I can put them in touch. So listen, it's been really fascinating uh, talk to you. I really enjoyed our conversation. I always ask people if they could recommend a book to a young person thinking of coming into the industry. I bet you've got a lot of books. I've got a lot of books, but I've got one which really affected me. So I, I, I'd recommend that. And it's and I hate to add, it's, it might not be in print, but I'm sure you can get a copy somehow, which is, I read it in 1998. Um, it's called Moneymakers by Jonathan Davis. Uh, and why it was so formative for me was that it, it runs through with eight investors, which included some of the great investors of that time, including Anthony Bolton and Ian Rushbrook. And Ian Rushbrook, of course, was my predecessor who managed Personal Assets Trust, which I now run. And it's a great book because it, it talks about how they got into the industry, how they go about investing. And one of the things that struck me about reading these eight chapters of these eight managers is none of them were the same. They mm. were all very successful but they all did it very differently. And actually, it was Ian's chapter that really appealed to me because there was the combination of stock picking, but also as combination combination of the macro and, and strategy as well. And so I was drawn to what Ian was doing. I was drawn to the way that he invested. And I actually, as a result of that book, became an investor in personal assets while Ian ran it. And then I became closer to Ian. And, and ultimately, sadly, when he died, the board you know, appointed me as, as, as manager back in 2009. But I think that what that, the book t tells you is it tells you that there are lots of different ways of doing this. And, um, and you've got to do it to the way that your character uh, and your particular approach is. And, and, and don't try and be somebody else. You know, be yourself and think of the way that you're going to solve this puzzle rather than think about how, how necessarily other people do it because other people will do it in a very different way. Well, that's a brilliant note to end on. Funny, I I haven't read that book, so I'm and it's, if it's out of print, I'm going to have to go to the British Library. But I like spending a day. <laughs> I think at the you'd British probably Library. be able to get it on on Amazon from or, or second hand second hand booksellers. Second, yeah, second hand. Now, the, if you were American, I would ask you, you know, where can people find you? But you presumably don't have a Twitter account, or definitely not. No. Anything like that. So no. we find you or an X account even these days. An X account. Yeah. No, I no, can. We, we we are on. I think Troy is Troy is on LinkedIn and Personal Assets is on LinkedIn now. Um, but we we don't. I don't spend my life tweeting. Well, thank goodness for that. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you, Steve. Thanks. Well, I could have chatted for longer with Sebastian. I really enjoyed our discussion, particularly understanding his approach to investment. Of course, while he makes it sound simple. The execution of such strategies is really a lot harder, especially his contrarian approach of increasing exposure to equities when equity markets are falling. But it's perhaps because Sebastian makes it so clear to his investors that that's what he intends to do, there's an imperative that can't be ignored. He has to increase exposure when markets are falling, no matter how bad things seem. I must ask him that next time I see him. He emailed me after we recorded saying, I kept thinking the one thing clients hate is complexity and yet the industry loves it. That's one of the great myths that the city thinks clients want complexity. Simplicity has clearly worked very well for Sebastian and for his investors. And it's a great principle to leave you with. Thanks as ever for listening. Please share this with all your friends and please follow us and leave a five-star rating on Spotify or an Apple podcast. See you next time.